Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This can be found on page 2 of your pew Bible. It's going to help you to be able to look back and forth at chapter 1 uh, as we get into the sermon this morning. Uh, before I pray, I, I just want to say, I'm asked often, why do you go to church? Um, it'd be a little self-serving if I say, I go for the preaching. Uh, instead, I tell people, I go for you. Uh, you who are here, I am so glad that you are here this morning to minister to me. It's important for all of us to recognize the power of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives and the way we were supposed to interact and, and communicate with one another. But I'm especially grateful on this particular day because uh, if you were following the events this past week, the rumors of Brother Brian's demise were greatly exaggerated. Uh, my dear brother had been in the hospital this past week and um, He's back on his feet, ministering at 100% full speed again. And for that, brother, I am grateful. It's good to have you back home. Uh, let's go to the Father in prayer. We'll thank him for that and pray for a few other things. Lord God, uh, what a grateful people we are. At least we should be. We have life. We have breath. We have hope because of what Christ has done. We have another day to be able to serve you, to glorify you, to be edified in your word this morning. We have the opportunity, Lord, to be conduits of praise, to bring back to you for what you have already done in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for how you have worked, how you have ministered, particularly in our dear brother Brian's life this past week. And Pray, Lord, that our congregation would seek him out and hear the testimony of how, even in the midst of that trial, you used him as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to others. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we would be found the same, that no matter what circumstance you have us in, Lord, that we would seek to be able to proclaim the majesty and the glory of our Savior. Lord, it's with that type of heart and frame that, that Lord, we do pray for what it, we hope to be is true revival that is spreading across our university campuses. We pray, Lord, that that is real. It's still early to tell. We know that. We know that real revival um, is shown by the fruit of what happens in one's life. And seeing repentance happen, it's not just a one-time thing, but a lifelong experience. And Lord, we pray ourselves that you would revive us. And Lord, even in the midst of it, as a, I know that there are people who delight in critiquing and criticizing such events, Allow us, Lord, to have the heart of saying, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that we rejoice. So, Lord, allow us to relish in the fact that Jesus Christ is being made much of right now. And in the midst of that, Lord, we pray that you would take your word as it's proclaimed and that you would use it to bear fruit, Lord, across this land and across the globe. I pray this morning for my brother, dear Rindy Dimpapa, who is serving right now in the city of Monado. He's getting the opportunity to preach two or three times this week, and we pray, Lord, that you would bless his faithfulness to the word right now. We also pray, Lord, for us this morning. I pray, Lord, that as I proclaim the beauty of what you have set before us in the creation story, that, Lord, uh, we would be edified by this and that we would seek to work all the more that we would glorify you. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. We have much to cover today, so let's get started. Now, the last time I was with you before Daniel Fest, 
we had just completed the seventh day of the creation cycle. And all of this is contained in the prologue from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And a few weeks ago, I introduced you to the Toledoks uh, sequence. I, in fact, I introduced you to that with an outline that's out there on the foyer table. If you haven't been able to pick up one of those outlines, I would encourage you to do so. Tuck it into your Bible. It's going to be something that you're going to need in the days ahead. But that Toledoth sequence are 10 individual sections or books that build upon one another throughout Genesis. And these sections are easily recognizable in our English translations as they launch the material with these words, these are the generations of, or this is the account of. And each of these books takes us chronologically from Adam to Jacob's son Joseph in Egypt as we see God set apart a people on the earth for his own glory. And this morning, we're going to get into the first of these Toledoth sections, starting here with verse 4. Now, if we're going to mine the riches of this new section, we need to have two approaches here. With the first, there are some technical matters that are going to help us clear up some confusion and misunderstanding. And with the second, there are theological matters that will have wide-ranging effects to how we live our lives today. And I hope the technical side will, will not bore you this morning. At the very least, I hope you're going to indulge me just a little so that you'll see the foundation that we are laying to see why this text is still relevant to the way that we live in the 21st century. Chapter 2 introduces two very important theological concepts as they relate to our understanding of anthropology or the study of man, which are a theology of work and a theology of marriage. And each of those are worthy of an individual sermon. So this week we'll do work, and Lord willing, we'll get to marriage next week. But first, let's deal with our technical issues. Earlier in our series, we talked about how Genesis 1 and 2 are not two separate accounts of the creation of man, but they parallel one another. When we looked at the prologue, we saw that men and women are the pinnacle of God's creation. Only men and women are made in the image of God. After God made everything else, he gave mankind the privilege to rule and to steward his creation. We see this clearly in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And it was necessary to the story for our narrator to move from that event on day six immediately to day seven. Genesis chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that, had to be, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now the last time I preached, we highlighted these verses because they are teaching an important theological truth. The reason God rested was not because he needed physical rest or that he was tired, but because everything needed for his creation was done. It was finished. We did not need to add anything else to this environment. In the goodness and mind of our God, his work of creating was complete. 
The world did not require any other created thing to come along for its satisfaction. It was perfect in that it was exactly what God wanted to come into being. Now, that was a very important point for the narrator to emphasize. So now with the first Toledoth, our author Moses will go back to day six to the pinnacle of God's work, the creation of man and woman. Now, from here on out, I'm going to refer to these Toledoth sections with the tra- uh, traditional term uh, of book. Usually there's a primary figure that is portrayed within each book. In this first one, it will be Adam. So this is going to be the book of Adam. And the next book, which begins at chapter 5, verse 1, even though it starts with the person of Adam, it will primarily be about Noah. So we'll refer to that as the book of Noah and the days ahead. I preach in English, not in Hebrew, thank the Lord. So I'm going to stick by using English as much as possible and only refer to the Hebrew when a technical issue needs to be resolved. And with the very first sentence of this new book here, we have a potential controversy on our hands as we learn about the earth's environment before the creation of man. Oh, goody. I get to take the hits once more as I get to tell you I'm right and you are wrong once again. (laughs) Verse 4 all the way to the middle of verse 7 with the words breath of life is one long sentence in Hebrew. And this is where my brothers and sisters who are old earth advocates say, aha, Blair, we are right and you are wrong. Verse 4 uses the word day. And in this one sentence says there's no plant life on the earth, which occurred on day three in chapter one. And it also speaks of man being created on this same day, which supposedly happened on day six. Surely this means that the word day in chapter one is not a 24-hour day and is merely symbolic of a significant amount of time. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Okay. First, let me say, if you think I am wrong, I am okay with that. And I do not look at you as though you are any less Christian. We are both saved by faith through the atonement of Jesus Christ at the cross, not on our opinions on day-age theory. But I also hope you would hear me out to my understanding here of the text. First, I would concede that verse 4 is using the word day to represent something other than a 24-hour period. I would agree with that. It would be no different than us saying in the day of Henry VIII or in the day of the Peloponnesian Wars. The word day, in this specific sense, is an indeterminate amount of time that encompasses an entire series of events. But like I said the last time, context should determine the way a particular word is used. If I said, it's cool in here, most likely you'd be thinking I'm talking about temperature, not how stylish our building may be. The word or the meaning of the word cool is determined by the way it's used. Our context has changed from the prologue to this first book of Genesis. And unlike chapter 1, there is no chronological framework after each specific day of there was evening and there was morning. That does not occur here. And also, the plant life of verse 5 is specific. Note the words that follow here, bush of the field and small plant of the field. Now, the word field usually refers to an agricultural field where crops are grown. That should be footnoted in your Bible. And note also that it is distinguished from the later word land or earth in verse 5. This is not telling us that no plant life has existed yet um, until this specific day. It's telling us that at the time man was created, there was no farming of plants yet. 
crops and orchards were awaiting something else for their cultivation. And we will discover just how relevant that is as mankind is created for that purpose. So yes, I think the word day in verse 4 is used differently. It does not contradict the 24-hour periods of chapter 1. So before man arrives on the scene, we have a description of pre-garden conditions. First, and we have noted this before in a previous sermon, there is a name change for God in verse 4. Prior to this, in the prologue, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And now we're introduced to Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God in English. Moses uses as God's intimate covenant name of I am. Literally, if we translate this in English, this is I am God. This title will be used from here through chapter 3, but after the fall, it's not going to be used signifying that something is broken now in mankind's relationship. Second, there is no garden yet. The Lord is getting ready to provide a gardener. And third, there is no rain yet, and some kind of greenhouse effect was occurring to keep the land lush. We will see later in chapter 3, verse 8, there was already some measure of temperature change. Now, I'm going to save a further description for this environment a little later, all right? But Moses wants us to know this was the earth's condition prior to the introduction of Adam. So we're told that God made man from the dust of the ground. Now, this is also unique from the creation cycle of chapter 1. Man is not made ex nihilo or from nothing. He is formed from the earth. And it is the Lord God who specifically gave Adam life from his own breath. This makes perfect sense why the book begins as it does. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Adam will be fashioned from the earth. In our next book, in chapter 5, and from henceforward, man will not come from the ground, but from his own species, the descendants of Adam. Now, this alone would preclude us from believing there were already a race of mankind in existence prior to Adam. And that this second account is showing Adam to be distinct from the rest of created life. It also shows us the unique creation of Adam. He did not evolve from other species. He was specifically created by God as an adult male. And we are told in chapter 5 that he would go on to live 930 years from this moment on. Now, the only way that you could come up with man as an evolved creature is if you conclude that this particular story is a myth. The words do not give you that impression. Mankind is specially created by the Lord God. Now, with that being said, because Adam was created from the ground, I do think that there is a relationship between Adam and the earth as its steward. Now, Lord willing, I'm going to address that a little more when we speak about Eve's creation and the coming curse in chapter 3. I'm going to keep giving you these cliffhangers so you'll keep coming back to worship with us next week, okay? So make sure you follow up. Verses 8 and 9 are very significant here. Once man is created, we are told the environment that he is placed. He's now placed in a specially made garden called Eden. And unlike the rest of the earth, God provides plants suitable for food and decorative plants that are pleasing to the eye for man and his soon-to-be companion. This, too, is not created ex nihilo at this point. God seemingly causes these plants to sprout up immediately in front of the newly created man. 
This is where he placed Adam within these ideal conditions in this particular garden. We also learn that in this garden, we have two significant trees that will have importance later on in the story. One is called the tree of life. The other is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, for the sake of time, let me just make three observations about these two trees with the promise that Lord willing will delve into them much greater detail in the days ahead. First, we'll see a little bit later, only one of these trees was off limits. That would be the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had unrestricted access to the tree of life and all other trees for that matter, but they are prohibited from eating of this single tree. Second, only the tree of life makes an appearance later in the Bible. We'll see it take specific prominence in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 22, when once again, humanity, including the nations, will have full access to it. And third, the tree of knowledge and good and evil will represent knowledge and power that is only appropriate to God. It will represent knowledge and power that is only appropriate to God. It is the only thing that is denied Adam and Eve. Thus, Andrew Bonar calls it a monument to God's sovereignty in the garden. I like that. A monument to God's sovereignty in the garden. In verses 10 through 14, Eden is portrayed as the headwaters of four mighty rivers that irrigates the future expansion of the garden. Now, there have been many attempts to identify the precise location of Eden based upon this description provided by Moses. I think that is futile as access to the garden is denied mankind at the end of chapter 3. Nor do I think it was Moses' intention to provide an exact location as he's giving us a description of the fertility of the garden that extends beyond its borders and would affect every nation on the earth. In addition, he describes precious metals and jewels being present in the garden. Trees and rivers often represent God's blessing in Scripture. Now, I've provided a few of these references on your outline. And from this garden in Eden, the whole earth would be blessed. It's a similar description of our final state in heaven, starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Let me read that to you as you cast your gaze on these verses in Genesis 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What we have in Genesis 2 is the intended state of humanity that we will have once again when the Lord returns and our full redemption is consummated. Every inhabitant in heaven will have access to the tree of life with no conflicts whatsoever. So if this was man's intended state, what is his purpose intended within it? Well, verse 15 tells us, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam was supposed to work the garden. He was to extend his stewardship over the entire earth as he passed this work along also to his progeny. 
This happens before sin enters into the world. Work was intended to be enjoyable, not a toil. Now, this is also truly significant here. The two Hebrew words that we have here translated in verse 15 as work and keep are also verbs that describe the work of the priest within the tabernacle. The first, abad, means to work or to serve. The second, shamar, means to keep or to guard. Now, whenever these two words are used together in the Pentateuch, they describe the duties of the Levites in the temple. They were to serve and to guard the temple. The same phrases are used in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, where the priests are charged to guard or to be gatekeepers to the commands of God. Shemar is used in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, when Moses warns the Israelites to guard the sanctity of the Sabbath day. We can derive from this that Adam wasn't just some farmer. He was also intended to be a priest of the Most High God. And then we see the, the divine command coupled with the Hebrew verb here to keep. Adam was to protect this world from death by being obedient to God's single command, which is verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Obedience to this one rule was Adam's way of demonstrating explicit faith that all God had done for him was good and right. He should protect his descendants by instructing obedience to this command. Now, Daniel's already ruined the story last week in telling you that Adam failed at this. But we will have to save that episode for another day. Already, we have important theological conclusions concerning work that we can make from these verses. Now, I've been contemplating this for some time, and I think I can sum up my understanding of this concept under three statements here. And this is going to stimulate some wonderful discussion in your K-groups this week. So here we go. Statement number one, we were created for work. We were created for work. Note from what we've seen, the order here. The garden was created for men and women, not women and men for the garden. Work is a good thing. It's intended to be a gift from our God. Busy and productive hands are good. Do not let anyone tell you that work is a bad thing, or particularly that working and enjoying the fruit of our labors is a bad thing. Note that I said we work and enjoy the fruit of our labors. We don't work for material words, uh, rewards alone. But the Lord called us to work, to tame, to subdue the earth so that we might flourish. Even Jesus said the worker of his wage, uh, work is worthy of his wages. Our work was intended to bring material rewards to us. But doing our work brings satisfaction of purpose. This is why I love the ministry of Next Step Farms. Those students are finding such satisfaction and being useful and helpful for others as they learn skills, even if the skills are only going to be used to help benefit their families. So let me give this to you as a warning, children. You were created to work. School is a time to hone those skills to discover what you're good at 
and how the Lord has blessed you with those skills, possibly even ninja bow staff skills. Those of you who've watched Napoleon Dynamite would get that. But if you don't learn to work and you sit around and you play video games all the time, you're not going to find satisfaction in the purpose that you were created for. In fact, it will breed frustration and depression in your life. Our second statement is our work is a means of glorifying God. Our work is a means of glorifying God. Now, I want to place this under two categories that interchange with one another. We are under obligation to do both spiritual and vocational work. Notice I didn't say spiritual and secular, but I said spiritual and vocational. Just like Adam and Eve, who were to expand the borders of the garden as they worked, we are to expand the borders of the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel throughout the world as we make disciples. Every believer in Christ Jesus is to work towards this end. No Christian is exempt from this work. We are to take the gospel to the world. But our example within our vocational work becomes testimony to our satisfaction in the gospel alone. Whatever work you are called to in this life is a means of displaying his glory in your life. If you're a corporate executive, God has placed you in that position to be a display of his glory. If you're a stay-at-home parent, God has placed you there as a means of displaying his glory and how you raise your children. If you're a blue-collar worker working on a factory floor, God has placed you there as a means of displaying his glory. If you're a school student, God has placed you in that position as a means of displaying his glory. If you're a software designer, God has placed you in that position as a means of displaying his glory. In your job, whatever it may be, you are called to look different than the rest of the world. You don't work for a paycheck. You work for the glory of your God. When you work with integrity, never cheating your customers or your employer, honoring your word, giving an honest day's work, that is different from the rest of the world. When you contribute cheerfully in your tithes and, and in your offerings, that is showing and demonstrating to the world, my satisfaction is not just in my vocation, but in what I'm doing for my Lord. When you encourage your fellow workers or employees under, your, uh, under you or working alongside of you, putting their best interests first, that stands out, especially when you're in a miserable environment. Now, you would think it should be the norm, but we know all too often that it's not. And when you see people, or when they see you, your motivation is to please your God for the sake of the gospel instead of working to be greedy and, and selfish to get all you can, that also stands out. Wherever God has placed you, he has placed you there to be a testimony towards his glory. Now, if you will, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is found on page 990 of your pew Bible. Let me show you just a brief example of this in the New Testament. When Paul first came to Macedonia, while he had the right to take up a love offering to support his living and ministry, we, we read about that also in 1 Corinthians 9, he did not do so. He chose to work as a tent maker in order to set an example 
for his gospel. So we read in chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves as an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not being busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, some persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It was important to Paul that the Thessalonians use their vocation as a testimony for the power of the gospel in their lives. He wanted them to be known as busy workers, not busy bodies. We should be doing our good deeds before others, so it becomes a light that causes others to glorify our Father. Now, this last statement is going to be a doozy for you, but it goes hand in hand with what we've already said. Work is intended to be a blessing in your life, but it has become corrupted and tedious to us due to the curse of sin. That's clear from Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Some people are able to enjoy their work. They wake up in the morning and can get excited about heading into the office or going out into the field or going into the classroom. But not everyone experiences that. And I find it's extremely rare that someone experiences complete joy throughout their whole career. There are constant toils when we work that are many times just out of our control. There are lousy or unethical co-workers There are economic downturns. There are times you're placed in a position you are overqualified for and you find the work to be demeaning. There are times you are called to work extra long hours. Even though you may enjoy what you're doing, you are perilously close to burnout, whether you're a CEO or a homeschooling mom. But here's the deal. Working despite all of that, knowing that we work as unto the Lord and not unto men, is still a means in which our God is glorified and honored. You become a shining witness to his faithfulness as he keeps you in such situations. The Bible does not guarantee us easiness in our jobs. But it does promise that every situation that you are in will be an opportunity to the praise and glory of him who created you. Unless the Lord chooses to bless you with health challenges, there are not many other types of scenarios that offer you the opportunity to display your trust in Christ than those within your vocation. That is where primarily people view you. That is where they see the testimony of your life. So what will you do in those situations? Publicly whine and complain? Or put your faith in him in such moments as you work to better the situation? Like I said, there's no guarantee it's going to get better until the Lord returns or calls you home. But your faithfulness, folks, your faithfulness 
is never wasted in the sight of a God who is always watching you. It's never wasted. You receive his pleasure in that. So you might be wondering, man, well, where's the hope in such a situation? I'm pretty miserable right now, Blair. What do I do? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is on page 1008 of your pew Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Sabbath rest in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, and we saw that when God's creation work was done, he rested. We saw this same principle in the book of Hebrews, that when Jesus worked as high priest and the perfect sacrifice was complete, he sat down beside the Father. He could sit and rest because his work of the high priest, of the great high priest, was done. It was finished. But I hope that not a single one of us would ever say that Jesus' work on earth was easy. Yes, he was divine. But he was human in every way as God the Father laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So what motivated him through the hardship and the suffering? Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And look at his example here. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked forward to his future rest. That motivated him. If we're not thinking about our future in glory we will lose our motivation really quick. In fact, the psalmist tells us, you, speaking to God, have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Where is Jesus seated? At God's right hand. Paul would say, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Why? For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're just merely transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brother and sister, Do not give up. I would never minimize your trials and your pains as you endure in this world, seeking to do right by the Lord. Yet have hope. There awaits us an everlasting joy that Christ was willing to die for. He took on our sin to provide our safe passage to it. And with such a worthy sacrifice... It must be a joyous place indeed. Let us look forward to our future hope. Let's pray. Lord, this, how can we not keep coming back to the gospel? How can we not come back to what Christ has done on our behalf and rest in that alone? Lord, when we think that the way we behave, the, the way we act is somehow earning our way into heaven, Lord, we will 
just come to a period of despair and futility because life is hard. But that's the beauty of this. That is not how you expect us to be able to gain eternal life. You expect us to gain eternal life by putting our faith in what Christ has done on our behalf alone, that we rest in that, that the one who endured the agony on the cross, despised shame, is now seated at the right hand of you, Lord, has set the way before us. He has given us the example to be able to look forward to. And so, Lord, we pray that as we cast our eyes towards heaven, that, Lord, we would realize the reason you have placed us on the earth is not to work for material rewards, not to work just so that we can find satisfaction in our work alone, but that we work for your glory. We work to show and demonstrate that our faith is in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for every member here, for every person in this congregation, that when they begin their work week tomorrow, no matter where they may be, whether it's at a volunteer organization, whether it's at home working with their kids, whether it's at their job workplace, Lord, I pray that you would motivate them and fuel them and edify them to recognize that what they're doing in this moment is an opportunity to be a testimony to those around them. Whether that's to their children, whether that's to fellow volunteers that they serve, whether that's to their co-workers, to their employers. I pray, Lord, that you would show them that they are there to show that they are there for your glory so that they may place their faith in that alone. And Lord, we pray there would be fruit from such labor. We pray, Lord, that people would look at their lives and they would say, why are you like this? Why are you so hopeful? That they would be able to give a reason for their defense in the gospel. And that in the midst of it, Lord, they would be able to proclaim your glory verbally in such a moment. And that, Lord, we would see people come to saving faith. Oh, Lord, work a revival in us. (laughs) Allow us, Lord, to truly be revived as we seek to live for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Brother.